Welcome to Helpful Social Work. Social work has the power to change people's lives for the better. This podcast aims to help you learn, think and act with integrity so people who need social work get help that will transform their lives. Welcome to Series 8. I'm Jo. And I'm Jerry. And in this series, we're talking about sustainable social work in terms of how we look after ourselves in this vital work. And incidentally, we're coming up to 175,000 listens of the podcast. And the number in the last 30 days keeps going up. So thank you very much for listening. And we're very happy to have some listeners from Denmark to the last episode. I'm not sure what, what went on there, but welcome, Denmark. Um, so in this series, we're looking at evidence of what helps social workers. And it is really good that it's striking a chord because Joe and I have just been talking about this and we think it's really worth saying that we have a very troubled world at the moment. And so when we're having these conversations, we're thinking not just about how the work affects social workers, we're also thinking about who we are and who we care about and who we love and what is affecting us. And that's particularly pertinent right now. Um, we have social workers in this country who are Jewish and are incredibly impacted by the terrorism in Israel. And we have social workers in the UK who have family in Palestine and are suffering with people there. And one of the things that our black social work colleagues taught us after George Floyd's murder, which they didn't have had to teach us, of course, is that people experience personal trauma, not just because of an event, but because of the long and painful history of oppression that they carry within them and that is within their communities. And if we look about us at work, this will be happening every day for someone near us. It might be happening for you. And we do really need to recognise that. Yes. Thank you, Jerry. I think that it's yeah, it's important to to start off the podcast and, and, to, and to say that and acknowledge that, um, especially since we're talking about managerial support. Because, you know, managers have a really special role for the people they oversee. It is more than a job. And, you know, at the moment, being mindful of how people are impacted um, by events outside of work is, 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 is important as thinking about how they're impacted by the events inside. So the root of the word manage is manas, meaning hand. So it's a hands-on job. It's um, really that role um, of interpreting the difference between the top, you know, what's wanted by the organisation and what's needed by the people on the ground and, and finding a way for people to deliver that. So I always think of it as holding the roof. You're holding the roof to give space for your workers to do their things, to do the things that they need to do. So you're not kind of micromanaging their activity, you're creating really good environments. And Ofsted um, have done a report and um, in it they talk about, you know, having a grip, having that management grip. But there's something about the language we use, isn't there, when we talk about management. Um, and one of the things that we need to be actually is kind or gentle. We need to find a way to support people and nurture and nourish them and um, there's an idea that I picked up a long time ago about being a manager which has really supported me and it's the idea that when you become a manager you open an emotional bank account with your staff you start off with a sum of money that's given to you by the organization that appointed you and it's made up of the authority that the role gives you the reputational authority you bring with you 
the expectations the organisation has created with overall management performance, and your staff will also add an amount based on their experience of being managed. And that's what you start off with. And as a manager, it's up to you to kind of grow that fund, nurture that fund. And certain actions will create deposits in the account, such as being kind, keeping your word, giving credit where it's due, apologising when you get it wrong, acknowledging unreasonable demands put upon workers and coming up with a plan to tackle it, understanding and prioritising tasks that matter in the workforce. So those behaviours will earn you money in your emotional bank account or, or you know, trust. Other behaviours will cause withdrawal from the account. And these are the things that cause workers to lose faith or break trust with you. And they include talking behind people's backs, blaming people, getting angry, or not just angry, actually, but using your emotions um, in a way that distress or make other people make it difficult for other people to talk with you, not following through, making excuses for repeated poor behavior without attempting to change it. So, you know, saying you're sorry, then doing the same thing next time, allocating work that it is not possible for people to do, not listening and setting people up. And once that withdrawal has happened, it can be really hard to get it back again. So you need to try and make sure you stay in the black through good communication and an ability to be a humble leader. I mean, I, you know, it's a bit jargonistic. I understand that. But you've got to be able to listen and admit when you get it wrong, but still not shy away from taking responsibility and making decisions. You can't be there wanting to be the most popular person or the person who's always pleasing. You have to, you have to actually make sure that the role, that the work is delivered. But you have to do that in a compassionate, I guess, uh, uh, you have to act with integrity. And that keeps your bank account. Yeah, and it's optimistic, isn't it? Because those are things that you can do. Like, and there are things that you can avoid doing. And also, you always have that opportunity to repair, don't you, by apologising and making yeah. it. Because we're not going to be like, I don't know about you, Joe, but I was n by no means a good manager all of the time. By you, of course not. And some people would say like a lot of the time I wasn't. Or yeah, there were, yeah. So you just got to kind of keep keep trying. Yeah. Yeah, and that's why I love the idea of, of a bank account, Jerry, because the implication is that you can always make more deposits. And and it also allows for withdrawals. And I, and I, it's the same as when you know allocation, which I want to talk about later. Sometimes you you feel as a manager that you're not in control of some of your actions. Um, yeah. But they still have a cost. So. And yeah. there's times when you can save, and there's times when you have to spend. Like you know, yeah, it's there's good times and bad times. We're definitely in a bad time at the moment. Managers are under yeah. pressure staff are under pressure it's much harder to kind of keep that goodwill and trust but people are are still doing it and I found a quote in our social work with older people research someone talking about their manager so I'm just going to read it out because I think it's quite inspiring uh, when we're presenting a case um, and we call her she'll come with you she'll go to visits with you she used to be a social worker so she knows what to do and you can see since she took this team, there's no off sick anymore. We're there because she's managing. Really, she's a nice manager. Yeah. And in some ways, that's quite a simple sort of statement, isn't it? But 
you know, be a nice manager. So, yeah. and that that's a kind of badge of pride, really, isn't it? To be um, to be seen as that, as someone that people can turn to. Yeah. And that they the want to come therapy. in and work with, you know. Yeah, yeah. And that they want to work for. And that they know their work is valued. I think, you know, if people feel valued, they'll pass that feeling of value down to the people they're working with as well. And, you know, that stress we're talking about, that's affecting everyone in our society. You know, the people we're working with are finding life more stressful. We are, our managers are, et cetera, et cetera. So, yeah, so it's a, bit, a little bit is about breaking the cycle, isn't it? Just being that interruption to the stress. Yeah. Um, so in the, we've talked before in this series about the BASWA toolkit. This is the Association of Social Workers um, in the UK. Their toolkit for well-being um, around working conditions. And there's a whole section in there around managerial support because it's one of those factors that really affects stress for good or bad. So the things that cause stress like demand or change or lack of support or good support, yeah, those are mediated through the manager. Um, they kind of run through their hands, if you like, so they have got scope to adjust those. And the sorts of things that the toolkit talks about are around managers um, recognising problems, first of all, and then kind of trying to influence the context and being seen to try to influence that. I think that can be quite inspiring as well, even if you can't change things that much. If you're clearly concerned and working on it, mm. that can really help. Um, trying to really develop and hang on to staff um, and also getting rid of some of those emotional and um, behavioural things that come out when people are under stress that cause cause more difficulty like um, you know, anger or kind of judgment or harassment and discrimination um, and making sure that you're trying to provide the resources and the systems to help people do things. So essentially, it's about creating the best conditions for people to do the thing, <laughs> you know, mm. to do that work. Um, and of course, managers also need managerial support. So this kind of discussion about managerial support runs right up and down the organisation. Um, and we will be talking about organisational support in a kind of future uh, discussion. And we'll go much more into those particularly kind of pernicious issues around things like bullying or discrimination um, and the need for anti-racism within an organization. So this is this this discussion is more about the relationship, isn't it? That kind of person to person um, stuff about how we mm. really enable people to thrive and, and, and do the best that they can and feel positive about their work and hopeful about their work. And um, we'll come to those more organizational, contextual, cultural things next time. Yeah, and I think it is important that managers start with relationship. I think that, you know, um, you can – I've been thinking back on a few few managers that I've had um, because, you know, the toolkit says that dialogue between social workers and managers about expectations on social workers, what's needed to improve conditions, is crucial for that healthy and honest workplace. So great managers are communi communicative and clear in their messages with their staff. And and it just, it's so weird what you just said then. It just took me straight back to a manager that I had, right? I've had some, I've been really lucky. I've had some really, really great managers. Um, and I had this manager in Australia when I worked in the court service. And he wasn't 
the best communicator actually and so right at the beginning when we all when he took over because we'd had a really good communicator before that we were all we weren't so thrilled to tell you the truth you see and we were all a bit kind of touchy about about his style but what we learned over time with him was his honest effort shone through I've never had a manager who tried so hard always to do the right thing by his staff. And, you know, it just endeared him to us because, yes, he, his communication was a bit clunky sometimes, but his intentions absolutely shone through. Um, and he was the sort of person who never actually said anything he didn't mean. And so... You, you knew his word was his bond in that old-fashioned way. And so, of course, we ended up being his biggest champions and being very um, defensive of him to the outside world because, because we knew how good he was. So communicators, the best communicators, and it's not just about the amount of words you're using. Mm. It's about the intentionality, and it, and it is about that, that um, the match, isn't it? Yeah the match between the communication and the actions. And um, I was thinking about, well, how do you create good communication? And I, and I thought, well, everything for me is about expectations. You, you need to explore people's expectations. What, what do we want from each other? You know, a manager has been put in place to ensure that work is required, that the work that's required by the organisation is carried out in a timely and effective and efficient manner. They have been. They're there to manage. And the worker has come to carry out their role to the best of their ability and to be supported to do so by the organisation and to be fairly reimbursed for their efforts. So there's all of that going on. But in between all of that is this kind of a set of assumptions that we know what good support looks like, that we understand what good outcomes are, that we're able to judge how much capacity a person has and how much support they need to carry out a task. And none of that's straightforward. And it's the manager that needs to lead the conversations that help people articulate how they work best, what they need to thrive how they know when they're making a difference because it's the detail in between those big pictures that that will make the difference. So I think clarity around the job description and core activities that support prioritisation when there's too much demand. Managers need to be able to communicate clearly both up and down the chain so there's good advocacy for resources and support for workers. And that manager that I was talking about he was an absolutely fantastic advocate for us in terms of resources and support. And the other thing he was, which was wonderful, was he was so generous with his own skills. He was a really good teacher. And it took me a long time to understand that because I would write these uh, court statements and they would come back to me and they would be covered in red pen. Honestly, you could barely see anything and I would get so cross and one day I marched into him and I just threw this document on the desk and I went, you know something? I clearly can't do this. I have no idea what I'm doing. Why don't you just write it? It'd save us both a lot of time. And he looked up at me and he said, yep, I've thought about that, Joe, several times now. But you see, I have faith in you and I think you're going to be great at this. So I'm going to keep investing the effort to help you get there. 
And I just was like, okay, thank you. <laughs> but the thing was, I didn't realize that he was investing in me mm. when he was handing that back again and again. Because, of course, he could have done it quicker himself. You know, um, so I guess, you know, a great a great manager invests in you. Yeah, that really fits with something that comes up in the Basra Toolkit, which is this idea about exchange, about social exchange um, as part of management support. And it draws on a study, um, well, various bits of research, but there's a particular study by Suri et al. from 1997 that's quoted. And it's about different forms of exchange in the employment relationship. Um, because what you were just talking about is it is saying essentially that it's kind of a trade, isn't it? You bring something to work to offer and you get something back from your mm. organization, but it's mediated through the manager. So you kind of mm. see it as being about what you get back from your manager. Um, and what the research has found is that a balanced exchange that bring mutual, brings mutual benefits or ideally uh, an exchange that actually results in both parties being better off um, mm. is is much better and it helps people feel that there's trust and that there's fairness and it increases commit commitment and kind of social behavior um, as well as individual performance. So it fits really closely actually with research around how social workers or others work with um, people who might need a service. So that kind of exchange model of social work that's uh, you know, probably again from the 90s um, where you bring something to the relationship and the person brings something as well. And that fits again with kind of what we're talking about in this um, in this era around experts by experience, or people with lived experience, that there's a kind of exchange of experience that results in both parties, not only solving a problem potentially, hopefully, but also being better off. Um, fits with what you were saying as well, that you know, your manager is exchanging his knowledge, he's investing in you, but he's also going to be learning how to better support someone and develop someone mm -hmm. from the experience of trying to support you. So it's really, a, it kind of goes back to this idea of reciprocity, which is a really core element of co-production that both people bring something and feel that they get something from that exchange. Um, and it's a good mm. question for, I guess, for a social worker or for a manager is to be thinking, what, not just what am I getting out of this relationship, but what am I bringing to this relationship? Um, and you know, how, and, and that around the expectations, not just what do you expect from me, but you, know, how can we make this work so that we both are better off? Yeah. And that's that lovely idea, isn't it? Is that you know we we thrive better together, um, mm. and that you know things that are done in cooperation. Are, um, are our best work really, um, and I said, and that's certainly what happened for me with this manager was that when he said that, and I had that insight into his, because he was so diligent. That was the thing. He was so he was he was just he he, he put in this honest, diligent effort, and and I just found myself so appreciating that and thinking, you know, and and that feeling that he was investing in me, and you wanted just to reciprocate. I wanted to reciprocate. That's exactly yeah. right. I wanted to put that effort back in, um, and so it was. It was good that we came to that conflict point, actually, because until then we hadn't really worked out how to work with each other. And I think that's why it's nice to have good discussions around um, expectations early, 
early in um, our work. Yeah, reciprocity, area... sorry, I just wanted to say, yeah, reciprocity yeah, does spread. Yeah, if you feel like you're getting something out of your one of your relationships at work, you're more likely to put something into your other relationships at work. Yeah, yeah. It spreads through the team and through the yeah. organisation. And if you think about it, it's hugely, you know, if you think about that emotional bank account, then the next manager who comes in is going to find himself with a really high, high amount in his bank account because we will have all put in um, because our expectations will, will be will be high and positive. So as you say, it's it's contagious. Yeah. Reciprocity is contagious. <laughs> I like that. <laughs> yeah. The other area where I kind of think we need to manage well, uh, particularly for us, is around allocations, um, the, the tasks, how many tasks we give people and how we understand their capacity to carry them out and how understanding that how we do tasks or things we like or don't like is not going to be the same as the people that we're working with. Um, and I, I was really lucky to go and work with a fantastic group of um, social workers the other day and they were just so lovely and generous with each other. But there was an adult social worker there and she was talking about what's been occurring in her team around allocation. And she spoke of how everyone in the multi-agency team got together around a table and they spoke about the individuals who were needing support. And each person contributed what they thought and then they agreed on who was best placed to take the role of the key worker. And other people may well have agreed to do part of the work or to support the key worker. But by the end of the meeting, everyone was clear about what was needed to be done by whom and when. Now, the other social workers in the room were kind of staring at her, actually. <laughs> like... <laughs> thinking this sounds great. Yeah. Yeah. Because <laughs> it does. It really does. It does. Yeah. And um, they agreed it would be a really good way to receive allocations. But they talked out that some of them had roles, which meant they were doing initial contacts on high volumes of referrals. Um, and they couldn't see how that would work for them. But what they talked about was that they really desired to have conversations prior to being allocated a case. And they identified the worst things that could happen for them, which was for it just to appear in their work tray with no discussion or notice or interest in what their capacity was to pick it up and respond to it. So it made me think, well, allocating work can be very hard when you're a manager because of that low control we have over the demand. But if we want our workers to feel valued and not overwhelmed, we do need to find ways to have proper conversations with them about what work they're doing when and how we can support them with prioritising. I think that that kind of just leaving a pile on somebody's desk or in somebody's tray and not having any conversation with them is is kind of the worst way to manage too much demand. Because giving too much work to overwhelmed workers just pushes a problem down the line and it doesn't result in good services to people who need it because they go out doing the smallest amount of work that they possibly can um, and perhaps they haven't focused on the, on the right thing. You know, these conversations need to go back up the line. Managers need to work with their staff to come up with strategies for managing in times of overwhelming workload because when you've got too much, you can either reduce the quality or the quantity of the task. But what you can't do is pretend everything will remain the same and think that telling people to just do it will work. 
Um, so I think that, that, you know, good managers also are managing the situation they're in with their staff collaboratively. Mm-hmm. And they're talking about what it is that the art of the possible, they're talking about the art of the possible rather than just telling people to pretend that everything's everything's doable. Yeah, one of the things I've always found is that if there's something that I just want to get done quickly and pass on to someone else um, because it's a bit stressful that it's there, um, or there's something where I kind of feel a bit reluctant to have a conversation about it, those are usually the things where you most need that conversation. Yeah. Um, yeah, and it's a, it's a really good um, rule of thumb to always have a conversation about new work or changes to work. And it does add to a manager's workload potentially to be going and talking to people or can seem to at the time. But the the goodwill that it generates and also the the avoidance of huge problems along the line, it's, yeah. it's definitely worth it. I think it's definitely a withdrawal behaviour not to have those conversations. Um, and and as you say, the problems it stores up problems for later. I, I couldn't I couldn't agree more. And it is hard. And I think that's one thing we can say to being a manager does take a lot of moral courage. You you do have to because you have to be able to be honest about the situation that is there, remain positive, and encourage people and help them have a proportionate response that's going to make a difference to people and and kind of know what that's looking like. And that's that's a lot to balance. Yeah. And you can be pretty honest about that. This is a really important thing that needs to happen and you kind of need them to, to help you with it. But you also can't pass on the accountability for that piece of work to someone mm. who can't take it because they yeah. they don't have the space. So it's kind of testing it out and thinking, well, is there some way that this person can help me with this? this outcome that we need um and also how can I adjust things for them so that they, yes. they can help me or is there yeah. a way that someone else can step in and yeah mm-hmm. um, yeah I was I was talking with a group of managers <clears throat> once and we we talked about you know how important it is to know the bottom lines of the activities that have to be carried out each day so that as things get very difficult you're able to articulate really clearly what we will always do um, and then you're able to watch that and as the pressure comes off move much more towards what we're ambitious to do what we want what you know the things that we that we want to do and you include more and more of them you know as the pressure pulls off and then you might need to reduce again and so so you're constantly you know watching that flow it's almost like you're a floodgate in a way yeah and also knowing what people's limits are because sometimes I think quite often actually research suggests social workers can't don't say no they just come to their limit and then that's it and you yeah. you needed to be aware of that beforehand so kind of checking in with people and, and understanding what what people can can manage and what they can't because yeah. we need to keep workers in the field we need to you know people people need people there to respond to them and they need to be able to respond to them in a curious and thoughtful way and that means they need to be available and to be available they need to be cared for you know um and and the manager needs to be cared for too because they need to be able to have someone they can have these conversations with as well yeah yeah absolutely um 
one of the things I wanted to talk about was the the issue that comes up, the kind of barrier, I guess, to that exchange, that reciprocity and, and relationship and open communication, all the things we've talked about, which happens just as a kind of, I guess, natural and inevitable consequence of people having different experiences, different identities, coming at things from different points of view. Uh, so this is something that's sort of explored from the start of social work education, really, isn't it? But um, it's, it's become, I think we've become much, much more aware of kind of the intersection of different experiences and mm. how um, how that can impact on relationships and communication and build misunderstandings or you know when you really try to kind of think intersectionally how that can really help enhance relationships and communication and exchange so it's intersectionality is a really really useful lens for thinking about relationships because when we use that lens we see um, much more holistically, I think, someone's identity and the way that different elements of their life and experience and personality and, you know, history intersect and overlap. Um, but also it makes more visible the way that um, bad experience, difficult experiences, experiences of oppression have kind of left a legacy with that person or are still affecting them now. And that is quite tricky because you know, we're sort of socialised into categorising people as um, Jerry is this kind of person or you know, does this kind of work or works in this kind of ways or likes these kind of things. Mm. And intersectionality is trying to kind of put everything together and, and not separating out the strands and really seeing someone completely. So it's the way that ideally a human would relate to another human um, and how we'd want social workers to relate to people. Uh, but it is really it requires more, you know, it's looking more fully and more deeply and more in more with more intent, um, takes mm. more energy. Uh, it's kind of almost on a spectrum, like the very, very other end from just sending out an all user email. Yes. <laughs> Everyone this, you know, it's, mm. it's you, I see you and this is what we're, how we're going to relate and, and, you know, um, really working at that. And it, it does have this, really impactful um, value to it that it explicitly allows us to name and foreground inequity and power um, and that's something obviously that comes up all the time in the the literature and the experience and the discussions that we have about management the power relationship that already exists between a manager and a member of staff mm. uh, and how that can get compounded by um, by differences in identity and experience so it's really important to kind of be thinking about that. Um, and the work that I've been doing recently with research and practice on um, an intersectionality project, the people that I've worked with who've got amazing experience, um, particularly Soraya Nayak has talked about the practice of allyship as a way of responding to those issues of inequity and um, power difference. And I think allyship fits really, really well with management. Um, because it allows you to recognise privilege that you might have or the position that you have um, and the power mm. that you might have, but also to see the other the person in front of you and think about how you can make change with them as an ally. So it's quite compassionate, but it's very sort of clear-sighted. And actually, when you're talking about clarity of communication, I think this clarity of vision that comes from intersectionality fits really closely with that so it would be um, intersectional management would include 
things like understanding your situated knowledge and the other person's knowledge, but essentially where they're coming from, really listening carefully um, with an understanding of the sorts of experiences that they're talking about and listening out for those overlapping kind of elements of their identity, being really curious and open to talking about things and then naming, <clears throat> naming the power that you have and, that, um, and the position that you have and the way that power impacts on them and their role and really trying to address that. So there's a lot to it, really. Um, mm. And I think it's it helps people to feel that that relationship is equal and that they're treated equitably and that they have value and that all the things that they're bringing has value. And then it also has this very practical element of kind of, well, what then needs to happen to adjust to enable this person to achieve their full potential? Yeah, and that's really made me think um, it's so important, isn't it, to understand that the role of manager has implicit in it a power base um, and that we don't step away from that and kind of, uh, you know, soften it down by saying, oh, well, we're just doing what we're told to do. Actually, there is there is a lot of power there and people will experience how that power is used very differently depending on what their journey has been in life. And so I, I think that um, using intersectionality um, to think about your management role and to actually use it in your communication with others, yes, it might take a bit more time, but I, th I just think it would be so much more effective in terms of creating allyships, partnerships with people that it would pay off quite quickly, actually. <laughs> Yeah, and you there's know, really good tools out there now and really good resources around allyship and thinking about intersectionality, particularly within kind of management and leadership and, and supervision. And, yeah. yeah, it's 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 a kind of an enhancement, really, of the way that we've tried to think about power within social work. I just think it's yeah. it's so helpful. I mean, I've come very late to it, but I think that kind of understanding of... Um, a position and how you view the world being linked to where you are situated in the world um, mm. and being really explicit about that then that just helps so much with that relationship building the trust building the understanding of, of expectations how all the things that we've talked about yeah and and as you pointed out I mean yes I mean whenever you come to it that's the that's good I think so you know yes I agree we you know I've come late to it as well but it really starts to inform how you move in the world and that's that's so important and it also just yes it perhaps takes a bit longer to stop doing things and start thinking carefully first and being curious first and doing that exploration but then you're really allowing people to reach their full potential aren't you when you're when you're working with people if they feel really seen and heard and understood and you understand particularly the knowledge and the resources that they bring then that's going to lead to much better outcomes actually all round um, and another thing that you know we, there's lots of tools as you say there is lots of fantastic tools out there um, and research and practice has definitely got a lot of wonderful tools on their um, their, their management can you remember what that's called their, their lovely um, it's the practice supervisor that, development yeah, program yeah, yeah. yeah that's a fantastic fantastic resource 
Um, and one of the things that they've got on there actually is the Jahari window, um, which can be used for self-reflection about what you know and others may not know and for discussion. And you're trying to move things into an open area where both of you are sharing the knowledge um, and you're trying to move away from the unknown or hidden or blind areas. And the things I really like about the Jahari window is it's talking about the things that other people know about you and that you know yourself. So I know and you know. But it's also talking about things that are actually unknown to you. So I don't know things, but you know things when you're blind. And I think that's really important because when you're in a management role, you're kind of trying to trying to do what you think is best and you're you're pulling on all of your skills all the time. But of course, because you're having encounters with a variety of different people, your skills are constantly being stretched because as those people bring their stories in, you're responding to them and you can end up, you know, exposing areas that you just didn't even know or that you don't see and other people do. So you need to be really open to that blind part of yourself and to hearing feedback from other people. Um, and then there's also the bits that you try to keep hidden, that you hold tight to yourself, that you hope other people won't know about you. Um, and they can be your vulnerabilities or uncertainties or pessimism or all sorts of things that can be happening for you. Um, and you have to ask yourself all the time, am I hiding this for the right reasons? You know, like, and the hiding always sounds wrong, but it's like, am I... Am I containing this part of myself well because that's the best thing to happen in this circumstance? Um, because sometimes, yeah, we, 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 choose to, we choose to keep things away. And then the last bit is a bit that neither of us know we're missing, um, you know, the unknown and unconscious side of ourselves. And I always like to think that in difficult conversations or in or in curious conversations that we have with our managers, there should be some exploration of the things we don't know. I think one of the worst things we can do in that kind of um, management worker role is constantly have conversations where we just rehearse what we know. The manager says what they know, the worker says what they know, and then we both go away knowing that we know things. I think you're really wanting to dig into what you're both missing. Um, and you can do that through asking, you know, questions that you wouldn't normally ask or using tools that kind of push you out of your comfort zone. Yeah, I think the conversations, the quality of conversations, um, it's just such a strong indicator, isn't it, of how um, the manager, supervisee, or like manager-worker relationship is going. Um, mm. And if there's, if there are questions and silences and stumbles and um, tensions, maybe as well, um, mm. and emotion, I think we can see that as a, as a positive sign. Yeah, it's not a slick business, is it? <laughs> Social work management, because yeah. it's it's people are you know, your your tool, your resources, yourself, mm. and people are kind of messy and complicated and complex, and relationships are as well. And so, um, yeah, we shouldn't be kind of worried if if relationship if the conversations are not smooth. That, that yeah. I think is can be a really positive thing. Yeah. And it also, of course, it's such a powerful thing having those difficult 
and curious conversations because that's what we need to have with the people we work with as well. If we're genuinely going to co-produce outcomes with people, if we're going to have reciprocity in our work, so therefore we're going to see the people that we're working with as bringing resources and bringing ideas and bringing all sorts of things to the table, we can only find that out through curious conversation actually and usually through quite difficult conversation um, because the agendas we come in with don't make us natural partners often. No. We don't feel like somebody's partner of choice um, that they want to collaborate with often. And so therefore, to get to that space where we both feel that the intentions are heading in the right direction is going to take some fairly courageous conversations. And I think it's good to be able to practice that kind of stuff with your manager because you should be able to talk about hard things well and safely in that environment. Yeah, and I think going in with the mindset of an ally for both parties is, is where it's really you can really have some good um, – some good ground, some good energy for, for those conversations. Uh, it doesn't deny the difference um, in experience and role and expertise and personhood. Um, it brings that to the table and thinks about, okay, well, how can we how can we achieve something together? Mm. But it takes time, that, doesn't it? It's not a quick go-do-this conversation. <laughs> you know? It's not. And, you know, and we do need to remember that people are working in environments that make a lot of these behaviours feel harder to do. And that's why, you know, that's why, you know, Baswa's um, Working Conditions Toolkit is so important because it's talking about the places and spaces we need to create to enable people to thrive. And that includes managers, you know, it includes senior teams, it includes all of us, because if we can all thrive, then we'll definitely offer more authentic partnership and relationship to the people that we're working for, whom, of course, we want to thrive. Yeah. Therefore, creating healthier societies, actually. So yeah. <laughs> it, it quite matters. <laughs> it's really important. And yeah, we haven't really talked about it much, but um, doing that remotely as well is, a, is an issue. We've, we've done podcasts before on working remotely. Um, and self-care and various other things that kind of came out of the COVID pandemic particularly. But that's that's an extra dimension to this, isn't it? Yes. Yeah, it, it is. And, and I think, see, I think there's quite a bit of fatigue around at the moment, um, like having got over the trauma and then moved into quite a challenging world year. I do think that people are maybe retreating a bit because one of the things that I've noticed is less use of WhatsApp groups and less um, chit-chat and social stuff on on um, Teams calls. So very, very kind of business-focused is one of the things that I've noticed. And, and I'm, I'm curious to see whether listeners have noticed that as well or whether they've been able to maintain relationship through remote working um, because we did really well for a while there, actually. People came up with all sorts of things, but it, it all takes effort to maintain. Yeah, and it needs that um, feeling of this. it's okay to do this. And when people are under pressure and things seem very serious and so really challenging, it can seem like, well, we shouldn't be having chat. We should just be heads down getting on with it. Uh, 
but it's the it's the chat it's the sort of social bit that sustains the rest of it so it is really really important um, and it's important for managers to encourage that as well yes so there's a lot on managers isn't there there's you know, <laughs> um, but but it's a it, it, once again it's a really it's a great role because you know social work managers can make a really good difference to the people they're working with and to the people that they're they're enabling to help others um it's what we started off talking about and writing about like 10 years ago um that we focused in initially on that first line management role um because it's it's such a catalyst um it's such a way of modeling and supporting people who then go and are the change agents uh, so yeah. it's a real transformational role. It's a great role to, to take on. Um, and if you're in that role, then um, you know, do seek support. And if you're if you've got a manager near you, <laughs> you do do support them. Um, yeah. Hold them in mind because it's it's a hard thing to do, but it's it makes an amazing difference. Yeah. 